Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month Cheslu in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven and said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant, which I pray before thee now day and night for the children of Israel, thy servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. We have dealt very corruptly against thee and have not kept the commandments nor the statutes nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. But if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out of the uttermost part of heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, let now thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and to the prayer of thy servants who desire to fear thy name and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day and grant him mercy in the sight of this man for I was the king's cupbearer. Nehemiah was a man of vision. Nehemiah received word of the condition of Jerusalem. He received word of the condition of the people of God, and Nehemiah stepped forward. You know, we can look back and see things happen in our lives, and we can say, oh, that's where God was leading me. Now, Nehemiah, I believe, was born in Babylon. Why would a Jew be able to understand why he was born in Babylon. But God had a plan and God had a purpose for Nehemiah and prepared him for this time. Just think about this. He was the king's cupbearer. He was a place of political power. He sat there with the king. It was a cushy job, no doubt. He lived in the palace. He was right next to the king and greatly trusted by the king. Nehemiah's job only had one drawback. He had to taste the king's wine before the king drank it to make sure it wasn't poison. Now that was a considerable drawback to the job, but God had him in this position and Nehemiah saw the position as an opportunity to serve God, as an opportunity to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and maybe to benefit the people of God. Now we're thousands of years removed from Nehemiah today, aren't we? This all happened before Jesus even came, and so we're thousands of years removed. But you know what we need today? We need people with a vision, a vision for the future of this church. Now, things are not going to get any better in this world. You know how I know that? 
God's word says evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 13. So we know that things are not going to get better until Jesus comes back and until Jesus sits on the throne. That's the only way it's going to happen. But we still need a vision for this church in the world today. Proverbs chapter 29 verse 18 says where there is no vision. And that word vision has the idea of word from God. Okay, so there, where there is no vision the people perish. And that word perish has the idea of just running amok, just not having any direction, running all around like the proverbial chicken with its head cut off, all right? Where there is no vision, the people perish. So where do we begin to get a vision? Where do we begin to look to the future for this church? Right where Nehemiah did. Right where he was. He looked at God's place and he looked at God's people and we need to look at our place and this church, and we need to look at God's people in this church. We can sit and worry about the future, or we can do something about it. We had a lesson this morning in Sunday school on witnessing, on just simply sharing our own testimony of salvation with other people. We don't have to go out and try to preach people into heaven stand up in a pulpit or on a street corner, but just talking to people that we know as God gives us opportunity on a daily basis, tell them we're saved, tell them how we were saved, tell them why we needed to be saved and tell them how they can be saved. And they can, but listen now, we've got to act like people who have some hope, you know. First Peter chapter three, verse 15, Peter said, you know, when people ask a reason of the hope that is in us, that's when we can tell them about the Lord. So we've got to look like, act like, live like, conduct ourselves like people of hope, and then we can witness to them about the Lord Jesus Christ. You think about this. Nehemiah was willing to sacrifice everything he had to follow the will of God and the word of God that God had put in his heart. He was the king's cupbearer. I remind you, he had this cushy job. He was at the king's elbow, and Nehemiah was willing to set it aside and go and lead the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. That's what he's most noted for. But not only was he a man of vision, he was a great leader of men. In fact, I think I have a book in my library that says something about, the title is something about Nehemiah, leader of men, or, or something along that line. Because look what he did. Nehemiah led people to do something that many people would say was impossible. Rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem. And he did it in the face of incredible odds. They were outnumbered. And there was Geshem and all the other enemies of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall that were there. And yet he led people to it. And they did it in record time. What was it, 52 days? They rebuilt the wall around the city of Jerusalem. So in record time. And then, here's the key, he did not do it alone. Do you know, and Brother Truman mentioned this last week, no preacher, no pastor can build a church alone. No church member can build a church alone. I've become convinced over the years we will have the kind of church we want. We will have a church of numbers or we will have a church of low numbers. We will have a church of mostly saved people or mostly, I mean, we just have the kind of church that we want. And not only was Nehemiah a man of vision, not only was he a man that was a great leader of men, Nehemiah was a man of faith. 
You look at his trust in God. Note the number of times that he encouraged his brethren to trust God and he was trusting God at the same time. You know, he didn't just say, well, y'all trust God and then he went home and worried about it. No, he said, trust God and he demonstrated that faith in God, that trust in God in what we would call impossible situations. So he was a man of faith. We just read his prayer in chapter one. Here's another thing about Nehemiah. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of vision. He was a leader of men. He was a man of faith. And Nehemiah was a man of prayer. Look at his prayer here in chapter one. Most of chapter one is Nehemiah's prayer. But look to chapter two for just a moment in verse four. Then the king said unto me, well, what dost thou make request? What did he do? He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Just turn over to chapter 4. Look at verse 7. But it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites and heard all the walls of Jerusalem were made up, that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth and conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem to hinder it. Going to get worried, Nehemiah? Look at verse 9. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto God. And set a watch against them night and day because of them. You know what he did? Nehemiah said, we prayed first and then we did what we could do. See, in some things have happened this week. And I don't have to mention that we know because they've been in the news. And so here's what we're doing. We're praying to God for our protection. And we've set a watch. All right? And we have some watchers out there right now. But you see, Nehemiah prayed about it first. He didn't put it in second place or he didn't put it in third place. He prayed about it first. And that's what we're going to examine this morning is Nehemiah's prayer and especially this prayer in chapter 1. And the first thing I want you to note in this prayer in chapter 1 is verses 2 through 4. There was a serious concern on the part of Nehemiah. Look at what he does. He has these people come from Jerusalem and so he asks them what the condition of the Jews and that's the condition of Judah. And they told him in verse 3, they told him the, the walls are down, the gates are burned with fire, the people are scattered. And verse 4 says, It came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. What was Jerusalem? What was the city? I know that. But what was Jerusalem? You read the Old Testament, it says it was the place that God had chosen to put his name who were the Jews? They were the people of God. So Nehemiah is concerned about the people of God and he's concerned about the place of God. But think about this. I said, I believe Nehemiah was born in Babylon. I mean, they've been there 70 years. Even if he had been taken to Babylon as an infant, he'd be 70 years old by now. And I don't think he's that old. And so here he is, born in Babylon, never been to Jerusalem how did Nehemiah know anything about Jerusalem? You ever hear that any thought? I believe he heard stories. Jerusalem was a beautiful city. And I believe there were those who had seen Jerusalem, who talked about Jerusalem, who taught about Jerusalem, maybe from his family, maybe from others. He heard about this beautiful city, this city of God. He knew that his ancestors had been carried out of Jerusalem in chains. He knew that Jerusalem, again, was God's place. And he had this great concern for God's place and for God's people. 
When I thought about that, it caused me, and I'm going to reminisce a little bit. I'm going to wax nostalgic a little bit. It caused me to wonder, are we leaving a legacy of faith and service to God through this church to our young people, to our young adults? You know, every church member, especially those of us that are older, those of us who have been saved for many years, we ought to be faithful to God. We ought to be setting an example. I know that sometimes age can affect our attendance, and certainly it does. Sometimes our health can affect our attendance, and certainly does. But, you know, even when you can't be here, and I know our folks who can't be here today, I'm thankful Sister Lola is, but we have other folks who can't be here today. You know what I know they're doing? They're praying for this church, and they're praying for these services right now. So even when we get older, we need to be faithful to God. We need to lead through our attendance and we need through our worship what the Word of God says and teach this to our young people unto Him, unto God be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. What are our children and our grandchildren, our nieces and our nephews and other young people learning about the importance of this church from us? Nehemiah learned about Jerusalem. What are we teaching young people? What kind of stories do our young people hear from us? Do our children and grandchildren and so forth hear from us? Do they hear words of encouragement or do they hear words that are excuses for not being faithful to God and not faithfully serving Him? You know, we have a lot of freelancers today in the Lord's work. What do you call a freelancer? They don't want to be a part of anybody. They just want to say, I love the Lord. Well, you can't love the head without loving the body. You know that? Jesus Christ is the head of this church. And people say, I love Jesus. Ah, the church, I can take it or leave it. No, that's not true. You can't love the head without loving the body. And if you love the body, you're going to be a part of the body. Now, a New Testament church is where we come and worship God in spirit and in truth. A New Testament church is where we're to get the pure teaching of the Word of God. And we need to be teaching these young people that we have a whole generation, maybe multiples of generations that have not been taught that. I mean, you can just look at the age gap in this congregation. There are many who ought to be here who are not here for various reasons, but most of it is they just don't see the value of coming together and worshiping God as a body in spirit and in truth. And we get nostalgic. I grew up in church, okay? Now, let me just say that, yes, my dad was a deacon, and we went to church every Sunday, but that didn't save me. Amen. Repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ is why I was saved, all right? But we grew up in church. Sunday came, we didn't ask, as Brother Truman mentioned last week, we didn't ask, are we going to church today? Or are we going to church on Saturday? We knew that unless we were sick, we were going to church. And by the way, I was made to go to church. I, I tell people I had a drug problem when I was young. I was drugged to church Sunday morning. I was drugged to church Sunday night. I was drugged to church Wednesday night. I was drugged to church in revivals. And I don't think I'm too warped. <laughs> well, I didn't get an amen from a deacon on that one. <laughs> but I grew up attending church in a church building that was mostly full. Hint, okay. I grew up in a church where we went to revival services and pastor's conferences and other meetings and our family attended all of them. 
I remember attending church services and supporting mission works and hearing from missionaries that our church sponsored. I do remember sitting on unpadded wood pews. Boy, we got it good today, don't we? In a building with no air conditioning in the summertime. Okay? And you didn't say it's too hot to go to church. You went to church anyway. And that ought to make us thankful, by the way, for this building that God's given us. And I remember the godly men I grew up around, folks. So this is something I think our young people are missing out on. The godly men, I, what, what godly men are you talking about? Well, I'm just going to talk about preachers for a moment. G.D. Walters. Some folks that name will ring a bell. J.B. Powers. I.K. Cross. A.T. Powers. D.S. Madden. Martin Canavan. Some of these folks that I grew up hearing them preach. But not just hearing them preach, knowing them and being able to talk to them and visit with them. And you know what? Many of these men were well known in our work. And guess what? They had an interest in little old me. That was important to me. And our young people need that. I also remember, well, let me just say, they had, they had the kind of character. Some of them were characters, but they had the kind of character that when I was, maybe I shouldn't have felt this way, but they had the kind of character when I was around them, I thought I was almost next to God. They were such godly men. I would be careful about what I said. I would be careful about, not that I was saying bad things, but when I was around them, I was sort of like the residents of Bethlehem. You remember when Samuel came to Bethlehem, he's going to anoint David as king, but when the elders of Bethlehem see Samuel the prophet coming into Bethlehem, what does the scripture say? It said, they trembled. This kind of men grew up around hearing them preach the word of God. And they asked Samuel when he came, he said, do you come peaceably? And he said, yes, I come peaceably. Sister Sharon commented not long ago about how much Brother Truman and I sound alike. Y'all pray for him, okay? <laughs> and how much we act alike. Y'all pray for him, okay? And so we're so much alike in our preaching. Y'all pray for him. But you know what? Words and phrases and things we preach and things we teach, you know why? We grew up in the same church. We grew up around these men. We learned the things that we know from these men. It's not intentional. We're not trying to mock one another. We're not trying to be like these men. But these are the things that we learned. These faithful men had an influence on us back then. And though most of them are dead and in heaven today, they still have an influence on me, folks. And the reason I heard these men is because I had faithful parents that took me to church and said, you're going. They didn't say, do you want to go? They said, you're going. And we went and heard these men at every opportunity. You say, well, that's fine. Those were preachers. And you grew up around all those preachers. Oh, but there were so many others. Faithful men, not preachers. Brother Les Hudson, Brother Herbert Swinney, Brother Buddy Taylor, Brother Bill Hughes, my own dad, folks. Growing up around these godly men, seeing godly men, faithful women too, but godly men serving the Lord. I know we're not supposed to live in the past, but those memories are near and dear to me because as a youth, I knew them and, and the preaching and, and the teaching. Some of these were Sunday school teachers. The teaching had a profound effect in my life. Are we doing that for our young people today? We talk about the future of this church. 
our young people of the future of this church. We don't have a whole lot of young people. We need many, many more. Here's what's sad. Many young people in the Lord's true churches today grow up and they barely know the name of the pastor. They don't have those kind of memories. And those memories don't have that effect on their life. Do you know that I did not learn what I preach and teach in seminary? Do you know why I learned it? I learned it in the church I grew up in. Because we had faithful teachers and because we had faithful preachers and I sat at their feet and I learned. Nehemiah knew the importance of the temple. He knew the importance of the worship of God and Today, we need people who will understand the importance of true scriptural New Testament churches and learning as much as you can learn from the Word of God. In verse 2, he said, I asked concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity. That word ask has the idea of, he almost demanded, tell me what's going on. I want to know. I want to know what it's like there. And so he's asking about his kinsmen according to the flesh and he finds out they're in great affliction. That's just brokenness and, and reproach. That's disgrace. Now remember, these are the people of God and this is the police of God. And it's in reproach and it's in disgrace. See, here's the thing. Nehemiah wasn't just thinking about Nehemiah. If he'd have been centered on Nehemiah, he'd say, I'm the king's cupbearer. I'm not worried about Jerusalem. But he was committed to God. And because he was committed to God, he was committed to the people of God. He was committed to the place of God. Philippians 2, 4, the apostle Paul said, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Regard others. Be concerned about others. He's saying this, don't look out for your own interest only. Have an interest in others. Want others to know the word of God. Want others to be faithful to God. I think many people in the Lord's churches today are like the folks in Laodicea and Revelation chapter 3. You know what they said? They said, we're rich, increased with goods. We don't need anything. And we look around at a comfortable building and we look around at a good bank account and we look around at how pleasant and how peaceful we have things and we say, we're rich and increased with goods. We don't need anything. And the church at Laodicea, if you look at verse 22 of that third chapter, Jesus said, I stand outside the door and knock. He wanted in to one of his churches. Nehemiah's prayer was a prayer of concern, a serious concern. He wasn't flippant in his praying. He didn't pray for careless things. He was serious in his prayer to God. I think some of our prayers many times are so general we wouldn't know if the Lord answered them. Lord, save the lost. You don't think he wants to? You don't think he will? If they'll turn to him in repentance and trust what Jesus did on the cross? God wants to save the lost. But how about this? Lord John Jones is a friend of mine and John's lost and John needs to be saved. Lord, use me as a witness to John so that John will come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Why not pray specifically that way? Be like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Here I am, Lord, you just send me. You send me to whoever you want to send me to, wherever you want to send me, just send me, Lord, because I want to serve you. And if there was ever a time for God's people to do some serious praying about the people of God and the place of God, folks, it is today. Not only was Nehemiah's prayer a prayer of serious concern, there was a strong contrition. If you look at verse 4, what is contrition? It's a state of grieving. It's a state of repentance for our sin and of our shortcoming. That's what contrition is. 
Remember the 51st Psalm, David's Psalm, after he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband killed there in, in battle. And David prayed in Psalm 51, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. That word contrite means to collapse. It means to crush. So our hearts need to be crushed by our failure of God. Our hearts need to be crushed by not being everything we need to be as children of God and as a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you look at verse 4, Nehemiah said, When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. When Nehemiah heard what had happened to Jerusalem and to the Jews, he says, I, I just sat down. Have you ever gotten some news that was so bad that it just took your legs out from under you? You either fell to the floor and collapsed or, or you, just, you just had to sit down. It just takes our legs out from under us. No, no way. That's the way it was with Nehemiah when he heard about the Jews and Jerusalem. When he says he wept, it means to bewail, make lamentation. It has the application of weeping over someone who has died. But listen to this on mourn. The word is used, this is from William Wilson's Old Testament word studies. It's used of a loud wailing customary in the east at the time of burial and for 30 days after during which they abstain from the ordinary occupations and comforts of life. When they mourned, in the Old Testament days, they gave up their soap operas. They gave up their sitcoms. They gave up their video games, their ball games. They gave up their Facebook. They gave up their Instagram. They gave up their TikTok because of grief. Something terrible has happened. Yeah, you know, we've reached a point today where we can just sort of go on, can't we? We get bad news. Oh, okay, that's bad. Okay, all right. Life goes on, right? These folks in that day for 30 days Life stopped. And Nehemiah prayed, he says, certain days. I'm figuring he probably for 30 days he was weeping and mourning and he was praying because of what he heard about Jerusalem and what he heard about the Jews. Listen to what God's word says in James chapter 4 to save people. Beginning in verse 8, draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to you. We like that, don't we? Hey, you know the best way to have God close to you is you get close to God. You say, Lord, I want to be close to you. I want to do what's necessary to be close to you. I want to live for you. Just, he says, draw nigh to God. He'll draw nigh to you. And then he tells us how. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. James is writing to save people. God is speaking to save people through James. And then he says this, be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. We live in the days that nobody wants to weep anymore. Everybody wants to laugh. Everywhere you look, you can find comedians. Some of them are in the pulpit, right? Hopefully, I'm not talking about this one. Yeah, I do funny things, and things are funny to me sometimes. But folks, when, you know, I don't mind during the, during the announcements and times like that having a little bit of fun. And occasionally in a message, something comes up. Hey, we just got to laugh at ourselves. I saw something the other day. It says, you can live longer if you laugh at your mistakes. Won't live as long laughing at your wife's mistakes, but, you know, live. <laughs> laugh at your own mistakes. But James tells us, God tells us through James, we need to be afflicted means to realize your own misery. To mourn means to weep, bewail. Again, just like in the book of Nehemiah. It is a picture of a funeral type of grief. 
without being disrespectful. I've attended a whole lot of funerals. I've preached a whole lot of funerals. One year I preached or attended 20 funerals in one year. Folks, that'll get to you after a while. And watching these families and their grief as they stand there and taking that last look at their loved one who's passed away. They're not flippant. They're not sitting there looking at Facebook and looking at their loved one. No. They're grieving. They've lost someone dear to them. And now God says through James, you have that kind of grief, child of God, over your failure, God. You have that kind of grief over your sin against God. And then he says in verse 10, humble yourselves on the side of the Lord and he'll lift you up. When we're arrogant, God's going to bring us down. God abases the proud. But if we'll humble ourselves before God and we'll say, as Nehemiah does here, we ought to say, Lord, I failed you. Lord, I'm not what I should be. Lord, I want to be more for you. And I'm serious when I pray before I preach every time. I can't preach without God. I can get up and give a talk. Well, I took speech class in junior high and high school and college. You know, I can get up and talk. But I can't preach the word of God without God. When was the last time we had a funeral type of grief over the condition of the Lord's churches today? When was the last time we grieved over the spiritual condition of this church? The walls torn down and the people scattered and the gates burned with fire. You say, we're not so bad, Brother Jim. You're right. And that was the problem with the church at Laodicea. They were too good to be bad and too bad to be good. Jesus said, you're lukewarm. You're not hot. You're not cold. If you were cold, I could warm you up. If you were hot, I wouldn't have to do anything. Don't you just love lukewarm water? Not really. You try drinking lukewarm water. I've been told it will make you... What's a nice way of saying it? Well, regurgitate, okay? And Jesus said to that church at Laodicea, you make me want to throw up. That's literally what it said. You make me want to vomit. Because they were lukewarm. When was the last time we had a funeral type of grief over the spiritual condition of this nation? Or a funeral type of grief over the spiritual condition of those in positions of responsibilities. And see, I don't call them leaders because they are elected servants of the people. Folks, we need to remember that as Americans. I at least I got one amen out of that. Then he did what every one of us ought to be doing. And it says, Nehemiah fasted and he prayed. I'm not sure Nehemiah knew exactly what he was going to do when he got to Jerusalem, but he knew what to do right now. Lord, I'm coming to you. And if I need to fast, if I need to put away some things and not do some things, I don't know how long he's been in prayer. But if you've ever gotten maybe a Bible study or prayer or whatever, and it just goes on and on, and you don't even think about eating. And Nehemiah fasted and he prayed. Abraham Lincoln said one time, when a man cannot do anything else, he can pray. Well, I take issue with Mr. President, because in my mind it makes it sound like he's putting prayer as a last resort. Folks, prayer is not a plan B when everything else fails. Prayer ought to come first. Then we know what direction we need to go. Nehemiah prayed and look at the prayer he prayed because there was concern and there was contrition. Now look at his confession right quickly in verses 5 through 7. He praises God first of all. Praise ought to be a part of our prayer, folks. 
What praise God? He says, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. He realized the terribleness of God. That doesn't mean God's bad. That means he is such an awesome God that it just creates terror sometimes in our hearts. You know what the Bible says? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know what the problem in America is today? We don't fear God and we got a lot of knowledge, but we don't have much wisdom in this country today. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so Nehemiah says, you're an awesome God. You're, you're holy and, and your majesty is, is just awesome. And so he said, I beseech thee. That's called an interjection of entreaty. It's a plea. He recognized the truthfulness of God with a holy confidence in God's grace and in his truth. He said that keepeth covenant and mercy. God, you're going to keep your word. And so I'm coming to you with a plea. I know Romans chapter 8 verse 15 says that we that have received the Holy Spirit, that we haven't received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we've received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father, and there can be a closeness to God, and there is for every child of God. But listen, I was close to my dad, but I never called him Lawrence or L.C. or even his nickname, Jake, except maybe to tease him every once in a while. It was dad. I respected who he was in our relationship. And we need to respect who God is. I hear people today, some of them talking to God like they're on a first name basis with them, and I sometimes wonder if they are. He is the Lord. He is our heavenly Father. He is our holy heavenly Father. We need to show reverence for God. Then there's a plea. Look in verses 6 and 11. He says it twice. He says, Let thine ear now be attentive and thy eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant which I pray before thee now day and night. That word attentive means to hearken. It, it has a beautiful picture here and the picture is just to prick up the ears. Now I haven't talked about Cornelius in a while. We have this little dog that just, a, he's neat. And I, we have security cameras at our house, and I have an app on my phone that when somebody comes toward the house, there's a little jingle sound that goes off. You know what? He has learned that. And if we're sitting there, and all of a sudden he hears this jingle sound, he goes, he knows somebody's coming to the front door or Jonah's coming in the back door. He doesn't know which it is right at first, but he's looking in both places. It's a picture of just pricking up your ears. I heard this. And so here's what Nehemiah is saying. Lord, would you hear me? Lord, would you prick up your ears to me and perk them up to me? Because here's what he's not doing. And here's what we do a lot of times as God's people. Nehemiah is not being presumptuous. I'm Nehemiah and I'm going to pray and the Lord's just going to hear me. I'm Brother Jim and I'm going to pray and the Lord's just going to hear me. Be careful. Nehemiah says, Lord, would you hear my prayer? Psalm 19, verse 13, the psalmist prays that the Lord would keep him from presumptuous sins. Just presuming something. Oh, I've just got to be in right fellowship with God. Man, I'm at church today and I'm the preacher. i just got to be in right fellowship with God. And so I'm just going to pray and the Lord's going to hear me. Oh, really? Did you know that the scripture mentions that there are some times that God will not hear? Psalm 66, verse 18 if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. 
What happens when I regard iniquity in my heart? I'm out of fellowship with God. You'll <laughs> hear the words, but, you know, there's a different, you can hear without hearing. This means he will pay attention to me. He will listen to me, me even grant my request. Jeremiah 7, 16, God told Jeremiah this, Therefore pray not thou for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear them. Israel had gotten to such a place that God said to Jeremiah, don't even pray for them. I'm not going to listen to your prayer if you pray for them. You're wasting your time. You're wasting your breath. Don't pray for them. Wouldn't it be sad if the Lord said that about one of his churches? Just don't pray for them. 1 Samuel 8, 18, And you shall cry in that day because of your king. Remember, they wanted a king. They had a theocracy. God was leading them. They wanted a king. And so God gave them the king. You'll cry in that day because of your king, which ye shall have chosen you, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. They're following men instead of following God. And God says, I'm not going to listen to your prayer. This is what you wanted. Hey, did you ever pray for something? And God gave it to you? And once you got it, you said, oh, Lord, I don't really want this, <laughs> you know. Well, that'll happen sometimes. And God says to Israel, look, I'm not going to listen when you pray that prayer. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15, And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Again, that's why the psalmist prayed, Keep me from presumptuous sins. When I pray, Lord, I want to be in fellowship with you. I want to be right with you when I pray. And Lord, please, and this is what Nehemiah asked, Lord, hear the prayer of your servant. So he makes the praise, he makes the plea, and then here's the profession. He makes the confession. We've sinned. The children of Israel have sinned against you, Lord. But look at what Nehemiah does. He includes himself and his whole family. I and my father's house. Boy, it's real easy to confess the sins of other people, isn't it? We talked about John Jones earlier, right? Lord, oh, John Jones is a rank sinner. Lord, you need to deal with John Jones. Lord, I don't, maybe you could forgive John. Lord, John's, well, what about me? What about me as a child of God? Does a child of God, can a child of God sin against his heavenly father? Well, certainly. And it puts us out of fellowship with our heavenly father. It does not destroy the relationship, the father-child relationship, but it affects the fellowship. All of us that are parents know that. Sometimes our children, we don't want to kick them out of the family yet because we love them. Or at least we're trying to, you know. But sometimes the fellowship just isn't what it needs to be. And so he says, I in my father's house of sin. We can't pray effectively for other people until we get ourselves in right fellowship with the Lord. I'm going to pray for the church. Well, you're a church member, are you right? You know, there are certain people I love to have pray for me. You know why? Because I know they're right with the Lord. And when one of those folks says, I'm praying for you, I think, thank you, Lord, for that. Now, some people say, I'm going to pray for you. I say, Lord, I hope you'll hear their prayers. And then Nehemiah says, here's the problem. We have dealt 
very corruptly against thee. We've not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the judgments which thou commandest thy servant Moses. Matthew Henry said this, in the confession of sin, let these two things be owned as the malignity of it, that it is a corruption of ourselves and an affront to God. When we sin, we're, we're corrupting ourselves and we're an affront to God. And so Nehemiah just prays. Here's what we've done. We've dealt corruptly. We've not kept your commandments. We hadn't kept your statutes. We hadn't kept your judgments that you commanded. You know what Proverbs 28, 13 says? Here's why we need to confess. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. What does it mean covereth his sins? I'm not going to admit to them. I'm not going to agree to them. I'm just going to hide them away. No, you're covering your sins. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. 1 John 1, 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10 says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him God a liar and his word is not in us. But what does verse 9 say? If we'll confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. <clears throat> Have we done anything that put us out of fellowship with God? Get it right. Confess it. Say, you know, I spend a lot of time saying, Lord, you're right and I'm wrong. Lord, I want to be right with you. And so we need to do that. And then, verses 8 through 11, there's this settled confidence. Nehemiah approached God. He expressed confidence, first of all, in his promise, in the confidence in his word. Multiple times God had warned what Israel's chastisement would be. You start following false gods, you get away from me, I'm going to turn you over to your enemies. That's what he said. But then he said this, if you'll repent and return, I'll bless you again, I'll receive you back. And so Israel was in this constant cycle of prospering under God, getting away from God, sinning against God, being chastened by God and going into captivity. And then they'd yell out for God again and, and God would uh, bless them again and, and get them away from their captors. I said our sin breaks the fellowship. It doesn't break the relationship with God. But look at what verse 9 says in 1 John chapter 1. God will cleanse us from what? All unrighteousness. You know there are people that teach that you can lose your salvation, that there is a sin you commit or you can commit so much sin that God will just say, that's it, I'm tired of you, you're lost again, you're going to hell. Well, if that's true, that verse shouldn't be in the Bible. God will cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we will confess our sins to him. But listen to John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus said, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Do you believe Jesus? Hello, do you believe Jesus? I thought I went to stone death right then. <laughs> Woo! Okay, everybody awake now? Do you believe Jesus? Amen. Amen. Thank you. I'm glad you. I'm glad somebody does. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. I tell you what, some folks have never read the Bible when they start preaching some of this stuff they preach. 
Jesus said, you're mine. If you've repented and trusted my sacrifice, you're mine. You're God's. He's not going to get rid of you. You may break the fellowship. Listen, if one child of God can lose his or her salvation because of sin, Jesus was not true when he said he was not, he was not telling the truth. And if Jesus lied, he was not the Messiah. And if he was not the Messiah, we're all in our sin and we're all doomed and we're all going to hell. You got to either accept what Jesus said or you've got to reject what Jesus said. And if Jesus was not the Messiah and his words are not true, let's just take the Bible and toss it aside and let's go do whatever we want to do. Live like we want to live. Because there is no source of truth in this world if you cannot depend upon the word of God. Israel's hope for forgiveness was based on God and not in themselves. Our forgiveness and return to fellowship is based on God and not on ourselves. Yes, we need to come before him and confess our sin. That just means to say the same thing he said about it. You can't inform God of anything. Well, Lord, I committed this sin and, and, and let me tell you what it was. Now, he already knows. And God has already said it's sin. And so confession is coming before God and saying, Lord, you're right and I'm wrong. <laughs> you know? You're right, it's sin and, and, and seeking his forgiveness. God's like the father in the account of the prodigal son. His boy went a long way from home and spent everything he had and ended up in the pig pen. But when he came back home, how did he find daddy? Arms wide open. And see, when we sin and get away from God and we desire to come back home and make things right with him and we confess our sin, you know what, we're going we're to find God, arms wide open. Now we also need to find the Lord's churches that way as well. But arms wide open. Then there was confidence in God's power. Not just in his promise, but in his power. These are thy servants and thy people whom thou hast redeemed by thy great power and by thy strong hand. Power means just what you think it means. It means might. It means strength. It means power. It means force. God's power provided them and gotten them out of Egypt in the Exodus. God's power provided for them in their 40 years of wilderness wandering. God's power provided for them when they went into the promised land and they had to fight all the battles that they had to fight in the promised land. And God had overshadowed them even in Babylon. If you don't believe that, read the book of Esther. God took a little Jewish girl, made her queen to Ahasuerus. And by that, she was able to give him some information that saved the Jewish people. You don't think God's hand was over the Jews there? Listen, if God has the power to save you, God has the power to keep you. And if he doesn't have the power to keep you, I seriously doubt if he has the power to save you. You can debate me on that if you want to. I think this is the last reference. Who knows? I may have more. 1 Peter chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Who's he writing to? Save folks. Okay? Save folks. 
Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy, not ours, His abundant mercy, hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. Listen to verse 5. Who are kept. That word kept has the idea of having a guard over us. I'm sure glad I've got a guardian angel. <laughs> I keep him busy, but you know. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And the Greek literally reads it this way. See, the Greek arranges words differently. They put the most important thoughts and ideas at the beginning of a sentence. And so word for word, the Greek would read this way. Who by the power of God are kept through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And I'll say one more time, if one child of God can lose his salvation, throw the Bible away, throw the Bible aside, forget about church, and go out and live your life to the best of your ability, because this is the only time you're going to enjoy life. But you see, God can keep his children. And God does keep his children. Do you see a progression in Nehemiah's prayer here? His concern led him to contrition and brokenness. His contrition and his brokenness led him to confession. He expressed his conviction about God's character. He was focused on the greatness and the awesomeness of the God we serve. His holy God, our holy God. And it reminded him of his sin and he had to confess. Listen, you come before God and recognize God for who he is and yourself for who you are. I tell you what, you'll have to confess before God. Lord, I'm not what I ought to be. Not what I want to be. And then after owning his own depravity and his nation's depravity, he prayed boldly with confidence in God's power and in God's promises. And something else happened. After he did all of this, he made a commitment. Well, where do you find that? Verse 11, O Lord, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, talking about the king, because Nehemiah is fixing to go make a big request of the king. Let me go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He committed himself to that. Oh, how we need the people of God praying this prayer of Nehemiah today. Praying out of hearts of concern. Look around you. Yes, I know we've got some folks that are out for various reasons, but we've got a whole lot more folks that are members of this church who just don't feel like showing up or whatever. I don't know. They don't call me and say, hey, I don't feel like showing up today, so I'm not. They just, they just don't show up. And once we have this concern, the first thing we need to be is broken. Contrition. See, we're all part of this one body, and if this one body is not what it should be, are we doing what we can to make this body what it ought to be? And then we need to be willing to confess. If there's anything in your life that is separating between you and your fellowship with God, you need to confess it. Not inform God, but just say, Lord, you're right, I'm wrong. And I need to be cleansed before you. And then when we have done that, just have some confidence in God. God keeps his promises. All who come to me, I will in no wise cast out.
I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. God wants the fellowship restored. That's what he wants. And so he promises that he will come, not arrogantly. Isn't it wonderful that Hebrews 4 says we can come boldly to the throne of grace and find grace to help in time of need? We don't even have to slink up to the throne of grace. Now, don't come arrogantly to God, but come boldly before God because the Word says we can and make our confession to Him and just have the confidence and commitment to Him that Nehemiah had.